we um, want to begin with a question. Um, and th this is a question that when I ask it, you might be thinking, well, Arlen, that's a young person's question. Not, that's not for me, if I'm not so young. But it, it, is, it is for all of us. I don't care our age. It's for everybody. So you get to ask, answer this question in your heart or your head as well. The question is this. Who, who do you want to be like when you grow up? Or who, who do you want to be more like when you grow up? Okay? Now, again, it could be someone younger than you. That's fine. Someone you just respect or admire and say, I'd, I'd like to be more like that person. Who is that person? And I'll, I'll bet you for most of us that whoever that person is, it's probably not because of their money. Most of us are not that shallow. But uh, it, it, maybe it is. But for most of us, it's probably something to do with their character over their riches, the kind of person they are. Probably they're the person you respect because of the kind of choices that they've made, the kind of choices that they make. And you say, I respect that. And uh, that's, uh, that, that, who's that person for you? Now, with that person in mind, uh, think about this. Wouldn't it be great? Well, imagine a community full of people like that. I don't mean personality robots. I mean just that kind of that kind of person. Imagine the community full of that kind of person. Wouldn't that be a great community to live in? Imagine a workplace where everyone was like that person, or a family where everyone had the kind of virtues of that person. Wouldn't that be an incredible place to to, to be and to have? Now, here's what I want you to think about for a second. Wouldn't it be great, if, 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 or cool at least, if one day you would make someone's list, that when we asked that question, someone would, would say you? Or you'd be in their top three at least, you know? They'd be like, I'd, I'd be more like so-and-so, and they would name you as someone they'd like to be more like because of the kind of person that you are, the kind of person that they would aspire to be. And if we're ever to be that to anybody in our circle, in our orbit, it's most likely because not, it's going to be because the we, along the way, what you've learned to do is you learned to do what you ought to, even if it costs you. Oh, that hurts me. That's last week's message. Uh, you do what you ought to, even if it costs you. First, the, sadly, I always joke at the first hour is more dead than the second hour. They answer that out loud, okay? So uh, you, that's bad. When you're losing to the first hour, you know it's bad. Um, anyhow, you're doing what you ought to even when it costs you. We're talking about structural integrity in this series. And let me remind you again that structural integrity is defined as the ability of a structure to withstand its intended load without failure due to fatigue or due to fracture. We build a bridge that has an intended load of how many cars it can carry or how many trucks can go over it at one time. They build a building with multiple floors. How many people can stand on that level of that balcony or that second floor or 10th floor without it caving due to the weight? Um, structural integrity. And it's important. It's an important thing in engineering and building. It's an important aspect. Because when structural integrity fails, when a structure fails to carry its intended load, it ends up uh, adding stress uh, and the load that it's supposed to carry is transferred to surrounding structures. If there, you know, it's when you start to see something that something compromised in the structure nearby, it's, it falls onto something else or it's leaning on something else, and that's now beginning to crack under the pressure of the load that was transferred to it by the failure of the original structure's integrity. And if there's nothing that can hold the failure of the structural integrity, it all collapses and people can be hurt, and we all know those stories all too well. 
And so structural integrity is important in engineering and in building, but, but it's, so is personal integrity. And personal integrity is much the same way. That when we have a failure of personal integrity to carry the load that is handed to us, uh, when, when that collapses, it always adds stress to those people we care about, those people around us. And it's just what happens when... Um, when our integrity fails. So we've defined integrity for the last couple of weeks and we kind of gave you a, a working definition loosely and then we gave you a shorter definition last week that is kind of the definition for this sermon series and we defined it this way. Integrity is doing what you ought to even if it costs you. Doing what you ought to even if it costs you. That's integrity. Right? And, and really, especially if it costs you. It's doing the right and noble thing simply because it's the right and noble thing, even when it costs you, and, and perhaps especially when it costs you. That's what integrity does. And we said all along that integrity is personal. You might sit here today and say, well, this is a personal issue, and it is a personal thing. But here's the thing. It's personal, but it is never private. It is never private. It always, it always affects those around us. When integrity fails, just like with structures, same with us, when integrity fails, the load is transferred to other people, particularly to the people who are closest to us. The load is transferred to them, isn't it? And so we, we want to be aware of that. We want to be aware that that is what happens when our integrity struggles or fails. Or we could put it this way about integrity, that our irresponsibility... Well, it becomes someone else's responsibility. And we all have experienced that on one end or the other, haven't we? So we gave you a, a Bible verse that we've asked you to memorize this sermon series. And we've asked you to put it to uh, memory. And it's our theme verse for the whole series. It's found in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3. And it says this, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And again, we have explained that verse and discussed that verse for the last couple of weeks. So I won't uh, do that a, a third week. But other than to point out, again, very, one very important big idea is the word upright. That the idea of the upright is somebody who is able to, to, to be standing up straight, to straighten up, and is upright and is looking ahead. Because when we get bent over or crooked, um, we are looking down at what's right in front of us. We're looking at the, what's, what's immediately right now and, 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 and the opportunities here. The appetites, when they, as you mentioned last week, when our appetites get engaged, they're always a now issue. What I, what I want to do right now, whether I should or not, what, what I don't want to do right now. You know, opportunities, pickles I want to get out of, situations I want to win. It's always about now. And yet the upright is someone who stands upright and they can take the longer look. Because now is now, but long, later, later is longer. And so they take the upright look and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's right because um, I'm looking at where this is going to take me and that's where I want to end up at and I'm making my decisions based upon it. The integrity of the upright guides them. They're taking the long look. But the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. We've explained that beyond that. Now, last week we told a Bible story from the Hebrew Scriptures, if you were with us. It was a story built around the topic of food. Uh, a man, a young man, uh, remember him last week, who compromised his integrity for his appetites. And his failure of integrity was built around food. And so today, here's what's interesting. Today we're going to look at a story of a young man who maintained his integrity. He did the right thing. 
He was a man who kept his integrity. And guess what? His story also is built around food. We're just talking about food a lot, because why not? So uh, here's the thing. So uh, our character today is found, and I'm going to tell you the backstory in a a couple thousand, uh, 2,500 plus years ago now, in the history, there was a time when um, uh, the, uh, the Babylonian Empire was very strong. In fact, if you know much about world history, whether from the Bible or from just studying history, you'll know that the Babylonian Empire was a, a conglomeration of the city of Babylon that was very strong in its day and its region. And, and even a thousand years before it became a world power, it was strong. But for a while there, it kind of got quiet. And during those quiet centuries, it actually consolidated power all around it by taking all the other nations and cities around them and building a deep and lasting alliance to form a real powerhouse. And during that time it was doing that, the Assyrian Empire arose. The Egyptians were powerful for many years. But at the right time, the Babylonian Empire, after a thousand years of being around, sprung into full-on action. And one time, uh, they went to, to, to fight a battle against the Egyptian army near Egypt. And the Egyptians were kind of the big boys in town. The Assyrians were the, were, were the powerhouse, but they had already kind of faded. They had spread themselves too thin. And they had lost their way, and things had happened. And they were just a, a shell of what they used to be. But the remaining Assyrian army joined the Egyptian army to fight against these Babylonian warriors. And the Egyptians out, and the Assyrians way outnumbered the Babylonian army. Way outnumbered it. But against all odds, the Babylonian army beat the larger army force, defeated them. And, and they were celebratory. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar was so celebratory that they had won the battle that what he decided to do was, uh, in, in a form of celebration, on his way back to Babylon, he would just take every single country and city along the path from Egypt to Babylon. He was just going to conquer them all and make them all into vassal states of the Babylonian Empire, because why not? And along the way, he came to Jerusalem, And Jerusalem had already been under siege already before by the Babylonians before, but he decided it's time to clean up. So he walks in through Jerusalem. He just, they destroy the rest of the walls. They walk into the temple. They destroy the temple. They take all of the objects of worship, the silver and the gold and the precious stuff out of the temple in Jerusalem, and they bring it back to Babylon to to celebrate their conquering of all these nations, including Jerusalem. In fact, King of Babylon was a very unique person. He would also not only take the the wealth out of the city, but he would take the kings. He actually had a king collection. If you didn't know that, some people collect different things. They collect stamps or fancy cars. The king of Babylon collected kings. He would take them and he conquered them, put out their eyes, put them in shackles, and tote them out for parties and groups and say, see my king collection? Aren't I powerful? Aren't I the best? That was kind of the world in which the king of Babylon operated. And so he conquered Jerusalem, took the king back, took the riches from the temple, and brought him back to Jerusalem. But not just the king. They would kill the men of war in battle. They would leave behind in the cities that they conquered, they'd leave behind people to run it under tutelage and under tribute to Babylon. They would have to pay taxes to them now and, and tribute to them now. They would, they would kill a lot of people. They would leave the weak. They'd leave the poor. They leave the elderly, they leave, they take the young women to be young women for their men as spoils. 
And they also decided to take some of the young men. And that's where we pick up the story today in Daniel chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. It says, Then the king, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, the king ordered Asphenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So here's what's interesting here. That as they conquered these cities, the king decides, I don't want to just kill all the young people. They killed a lot of the men of war, left some of the people behind to run the place. But they took these teenagers, I'm talking about 13-year-olds, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, and they would take from the royal, from the noble amongst them, they were basically trying to take the best and the brightest young men and young women for different reasons, but that's another story, but the young men to bring them back to Babylon and to put them to work, basically to to train them to kind of help operate things in Babylon. In fact, verse 4 tells us this, uh, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So what the king was doing was he was bringing these young people from all these different cities and nations he conquered, and they were the best and they were the brightest. They were people that looked good because you know why? They would be a good commercial for the success of Babylon. They have all the, all the sharp people in the city, and they would train them. And actually in doing so, the king of Babylon actually turned the royal city, into a cosmopolitan place. Because all of a sudden, you have people, diverse people, from different languages and races and places coming there. They're being taught the language. They're being taught the customs. They're being taught, they're educating them. They're, they're, and they're going to they're gonna service. So when you come to Babylon, you see this diversity. And you see all these people, and you say, wow, look at this place. And, and, and look at the power of Babylon to conquer all these nations and to create this diverse place here in Babylon. And so these people were brought there. Now, amongst uh, um, the people that were brought here, um, it says this in verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. This is the part where some of us read the Bible and we, we don't think about things. I'm not being critical. We, I've been guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. We just kind of read it and go on without thinking about context. Because we live in the 21st century, you know, and, and we all live pretty good lives. Not that long ago in the world history, this is a big deal. People, you lived day to day hoping to survive. Like eating Tomorrow was never guaranteed. You, could, you didn't have ways to preserve your foods very long. You just didn't have electricity and running. Every day was a new, what are we going to gather to eat today? What can we make last a couple days, a few days? But what's, it's not going to last very long. No matter what we do to it, you, even if you put salt on it, it's just not gonna, the meat's going to go bad pretty soon. How do you survive very long? And so if a crop goes bad, we're in trouble. If I have food but I can't get some for today, I'm in trouble. That's why prayers like in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. We don't even understand the context of that prayer because to us, we're like, well, my daily bread, I mean, I got a fridge full of it. You know, I'm ready for a snowstorm. If the weather's bad outside, I got probably a good week's worth of food to eat. We're okay. And if we, if we are low in the kitchen, just go to Strax and get some more. 
And if you don't want to drive on the bad roads, just call Uber Eats. They'll bring it right to you, you know? So we don't even think in these terms. But in, in, in history, most people were just figuring out, what will I eat tomorrow? What will be my food for tomorrow? Right? That's just how it was, especially if you weren't rich enough to take everyone else's food like the king of Babylon could. So these are kids who are taken from Israel and brought to Babylon, best and the brightest, and they were given a sweet deal because they were given a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, which basically means they didn't have to worry where the next meal was coming from. That was a change. Listen, this is like your 401k or your pension plan. This is like, oh, wow, I don't have to figure out if I'm going to eat next week. Is this going to come every day? It's just a, and that, it's a game changer. And not just any old food. They got food from the king's table. In other words, the, the chefs that were preparing the food for the king were preparing the same exact course and the exact same food for these young men. It's a pretty sweet gig. I mean, you're a captive and you're taken out of your home country and your family's probably been slaughtered. But hey, other than that, it's a pretty sweet gig. At least you're not dead, right? And then it says in verse 5, they were trained... They were to be trained for three years. Remember, these are teenagers, 13 to 17, whatever. Trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. So they're going to develop them, prepare them to serve in the royal palace. Now, among these, uh, now let me say this first. If you were the father of one of these kids and you were still alive when they were taken into captivity, or if you were a good friend or family member or you were their buddy, you'd be like, hey guys, listen to me. You got a pretty sweet gig for what's happening to our nation. Don't mess it up. You know what I'm saying? Because you could have been turned into a slave where you were the ones put in the salt mines. Or you could, be, you could have been used as battle fodder to be in the front lines and just get butchered first in the case of a battle. Or you could have been put into, you know, manual labor, and as soon as you get hurt, they just leave you for dead because they're going to replace you with another slave instead, so who cares about you? I mean, you're, but you're in the king's service. You're going to be groomed and fed really well and serve in, in Babylon, the cosmopolitan city. Hey, you got, don't, don't mess this up, man. And among these young men in this group here were people that we might know about. One is named Daniel. Another is Hananiah. Another is Mishael. And Azariah, and if you don't know all those names, it's because the, the king of Babylon changed their names. Daniel was changed, changed to Belshazzar. And uh, the other boys were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might know those names better, perhaps, if you've been around the Bible stories very much. But their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And by the way, the king changed their names, and that's a big deal, too. That was a sign of ownership, when you change someone's name, you're basically saying, I own you, I'm giving you a new name. It's kind of like when some of you got a pet from somewhere else that was already named, and you took the pet home, and you're like, eh, I don't like that name. So you change the pet's name, which has got to be weird for the pet. Like, what? Is my new, what's my name now? And so, but you just, you could do that because it was your pet. You owned it. And in this case, the king of Babylon would take these people and say, I own you. I'm going to give you a new name. And the names were usually in line with their Babylonian gods. It was, it was a name attributing to their religion, their beliefs, right? So, in this story, these people are in a spot. And again, as, as captivity goes, it's a pretty sweet gig. But here's what gets interesting. Verse 8 tells us this. But, but Daniel resolved. That word resolved, you know what it means? 
Resolved means he made up his mind. He made up his mind. That Daniel, he, he resolved not to defile himself. The word defile means he, not to corrupt himself or to be untrue to himself. To, to compromise on his core identity and beliefs. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. With, in other words, with the very security that people didn't have back then that was given to him in this deal. Daily food, daily, the king's daily meats and wine. He decided, I'm not going to do it. Now, we read this story and you and I, we might be tempted to say, Daniel, 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 come here. Pep talk. Dude, what are you doing, man? You want to be in the salt mines? You know, do you want to be battle fodder? Listen, dude. I don't, I, just get, get over it. Yeah, but, no, 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 don't, yeah, but. Whatever, you know, whatever problems you have with this, I mean, you've been taken captive. Life's kind of, the game has changed. The game board has changed. You've been taken captive. I mean, I understand that principle back home, but it's, it's over, rover, you know. I mean, you just gotta, when in Rome, you know, just do, well, when in Babylon, do, do, do what you gotta do, man. Right? Daniel, forget that. In fact, you and I today reading the story with our Western thinking, it's hard for a modern thinking and our cultural Christianity that just conveniently follows God as long as hopefully he blesses and makes and prospers us. It's hard for us today uh, to understand what Daniel's doing here because it makes no sense to us. I will try to explain a little bit of it here, but it still won't make full sense to us because we're like, what's the big deal? Maybe. Because we're, we just are so removed from this situation but, but let me try to explain it a little bit to you. Have you ever prayed this prayer before you ate? Lord, bless this food to nourish and strengthen our bodies. If you, maybe you've, you've grown up praying that and you, you still do, or maybe you, you, you stopped, but you used to. Or maybe you, you've seen people do it, you're like, what's that all about? Maybe it's something we ought to get back to a little bit. Praying for a, a blessing and, and actually giving thanks for the food in front of us. Where does that come from? Well, again, today we don't think about it because we can just call Uber Eats and we have food everywhere and we're wealthy and we're Westerners uh, and we're modern. But, but to, to so many people throughout history, especially in these times, it worked like this, that people realized that when it came to your food, that God provided their food and the food would strengthen their body and the body being strengthened by the food would then be healthy and not, and not malnourished, okay, and starving. The food would strengthen the body and the body would give it health would be healthy, and because they were healthy, they could prosper in a world where many people weren't able to prosper. They could have prosperity. That was how it kind of worked. But Daniel knew that because he was taken captive and then under the circumstances of war he was brought and how they were renamed, he knew that in this case, God wouldn't be given credit for this process, but rather Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, was going to be given credit for this process as their names were renamed and they were brought there. Food was offered to Marduk and they were going to be given food and his strong Jewish Hebrew growing up beliefs that now Marduk would get the credit for the food he ate, which would strengthen his body, which would bring him health and prosperity. And then they say, look, isn't the, aren't these guys, isn't this city full of great young people, healthy and sharp? And isn't all the blessing of Marduk? And Daniel had a problem with that. Because it would make Marduk seem more powerful and important in his life than Yahweh, his God. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. There was kind of some seeming to be proof already that Marduk may have been more powerful than Yahweh. 
to the natural eye. Because the Babylonians just walked right into Jerusalem, tore down their walls, tore up the temple of their God, took all the wealth and the gold and the silver out of the temple and marched it back to Babylon. It would seem that he was maybe more powerful. Now, you'd have to remove yourself from the bigger picture of God, what God had been doing and that God had pro promised a captivity of, of judgment to correct his wayward people. You'd have to ignore all of that to come to that conclusion. But on the surface level in that moment, it would appear that God was weaker than the Babylonian idols and false gods. And Daniel could have just gone and said, well, hey, if God was more powerful, he wouldn't have let me be here, so why should I not just do what I got to do to survive? I mean, if I would have been principled, but that's before my, I was taken into captivity. So again, circumstances, right? But he was determined not to allow himself to be used in such a way that he would concede the deity of Marduk. And so what Daniel did was he resolved, or Daniel, he made up his mind. Daniel made, that's what resolved means, he made up his mind. He was not going to concede the deity of Marduk as anything more than a false idol or a false god. But here's the key, and this is so, this is so important to understand. That Daniel made up his mind ahead of time. Ahead of time. He walked into the situation before he knew how it would turn out, before he knew what would happen, before he said, oh, okay, this is going to work out okay for me. Okay, I guess we'll go ahead. He made up his mind ahead of time. And that's what has to happen to us because if we don't think ahead of time, if we don't have upright outlook, when the appetites engage us with the now because now is now and, and later is later, um, the evidence will, will cloud us so big that we won't be able to do this right thing in the moment. But, but Daniel made up his mind ahead of time. And that's when the big stuff happens. This is so big. This is when, this is when we set ourselves up for those big God moments. This is when we set ourselves up for the big God stories, where God does something really cool. The stories you like to read about, the stories that are in the scriptures or in history or that you've experienced or someone you admire experiences, is when we make up our mind ahead of time to do the right thing, to have integrity to do what you ought to, even if it costs you, is in those moments that, that we open up the door for those God moments, those stories to happen. Perhaps you say, well, yeah, but, but how do you do that? Well, perhaps Daniel, perhaps Daniel understood something that we often forget until it's too late. And that is this, that, that one breach of integrity leads to another. What well, tends to happen to us is we tend to get to a spot where we're like, well, you know, I normally wouldn't do that. But in this case, I've got I to get ahead. I wouldn't normally, wouldn't normally look at that stuff, but, you know, I just want to now, but I'll, I won't do it again. I wouldn't normally, you know, abuse that substance, but, you know, friends and the moment and I don't know, I won't again. I won't, I won't break that ethics in my business, but I've got I to gotta win this account I got to get the promotion over this person to pay for, take care of my family. I got to, got to beat my competitor. So therefore, I, I got to get out of trouble. So I got to lie this once just to get out of trouble. But I won't do that again. I'm just going to do it this once. But here's the problem: one breach of integrity. Once you do that once, it just leads to another, doesn't it? In fact, what happens is this: that the first breach makes the second breach easier. All of a sudden, the second time you're like, well, you know, I've already looked at it before. I shouldn't have done it, but I've already done that. So, you know, I've already tried that. I've already done that stuff. 
I've already made those decisions. I've already operated that way. I've, I've covered that. I'm going to cover this up too just to see it through. And one breach of integrity leads to another. And the first breach makes the second breach easier. And then what happens is this. The second breach creates a pattern. Next thing you know, we're stuck in a pattern. This is just, and then we start justifying cognitively. Well, this is just, I don't think that's even wrong anymore. We're like, we're like Esau last week. That's, even, that's even wrong anymore. I don't even care. This is just, you know what, I just have realigned my beliefs anyhow. We just kind of just, because we're in a pattern, it's just, it becomes the new normal. It's addiction, it's, it's struggle, it's bad behavior, it's continual, consistent bad behavior, it's being ruled by an appetite, it's a thousand things. It's bad business dealings. It's, it's a life that has created a bad pattern from a, a first breach of integrity that led down a path. And Daniel seemed to understand this. Now, this next verse is very important and it's very big because what Daniel does next puts himself in the middle of the spotlight. Daniel 1 verse 8 says this, Daniel asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Check it out. Daniel asked permission of the person who was in charge of him bringing them this food to not do it. Now why is that a big deal? Because if it was you and me, you know what we'd be tempted to do? We'd be tempted to do what we did when we were little kids. When we were little kids and we didn't want to eat what our parents put in front of us, or maybe your kids did this to you, you pretend to eat it, but you kind of sneak it off the table to feed to the dog. Or you cough and put it away and you're going to throw it away somewhere. Oh, yeah, I ate my food. Yeah, yeah. You know, Daniel could have said, oh, yeah, I'll bring that to my room, please, you know. Just dump it. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm going to do the right. I'm going to keep my integrity. But there's no reason to make them aware of it because then I'm going to get me in some trouble. But Daniel goes out there and goes right to the person. Doesn't try to be coy. Doesn't try to work around anything. He just goes up and says, hey, I got a problem with this because of who I am. And I want to talk to you about it. What can we work out? Because I don't want to do this. What can we work out? I mean, you know, you, you see, that's a big deal. Because the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, they weren't known for their mercy. They just conquered people and killed them along the way. The guy goes to, hey, there's a slave down here you don't know who refuses to eat the, you give him that sweet gig, you know, put him in your royal temple and he doesn't want to eat the meat. He's refusing to participate. Oh, just kill him and get another one. I mean, seriously, there's just no win here. But Daniel put himself right out there. And Daniel was at a place where there was no mercy to be found there. But his only hope, his only hope was that God would intervene. And here's the thing, folks. God had not promised he would intervene. We all like the stories where God intervenes, but he had no promise from God that God would intervene here. There have been other people who did the right thing. Like John the Baptist was beheaded. Did God intervene and save John's head from being cut off? No, he was beheaded. There are people in history who were thrown to the lions, burned at the stake for their faith. Daniel had no guarantees that God would intervene. God had not promised Daniel any intervention. This literally could have been, I will do the right thing and it's going to get me killed. That's all I know. His only hope was I may die, but I'll die doing the right thing. And God could intervene. I don't know. That's my only hope. Because he put himself out there. And that's a very big deal. Brings us to verse 9. Now God. Isn't that funny? Now God. Wouldn't it have been nice if it would have been like first God? 
First God. Like, it would have been nice for Daniel if on his way to captivity, like God appears to Daniel to say, Daniel, you're about to be taken into captivity. And when you get there, they're going to give you the king's meat and the king's wine, but don't eat it. It's all going to turn out okay. It's going to be awesome. Okay, I can do the right thing now. Right? Wouldn't it be great if, the, if God just came to you in person and said, hey, don't sign that contract because you know it's wrong, but you feel you have to. But, but trust me, if you, it's going to work really good for you. Just do that. Okay, thank you, God. I know what to do now. You know? The problem with most of us is doing the right thing. We're facing something that we know we ought to, but it might cost us. And we're like, I don't know if I want to pay that price. I don't know if I want to lose that situation. I don't want to lose that opportunity. I don't want to close that door. I don't want to miss that friend. I, I don't know. You know? This is hard. This is hard for me because if I do the right thing now, well, what will I miss out on? But Daniel decided he made up his mind. He made up his mind ahead of time. And when he did, now, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. The, the guy in charge of him, God gave him a soft spot in his heart. Put, he put something in his heart to, to care for Daniel. But, still a problem, but the official told Daniel, he said, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned you your food and drink. He's like, look, this isn't going to be good for me because I'm in charge of you. In fact, here's what he says. He says, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age when, you know, your three years of training are up and you go there and you look all worse than the other young men your age? He said, the king would then have my head because of you. I need to pause here and explain something. That phrase, have, your, have my head, that's a figure of speech to you and me today that was a literal reality to them back then. Like today, we're like, oh man, they'll have, she'll have my head. That means she'll be upset with you, you know? You know, I'll get, you'll get a stern lecture. Have my head. Back then, have my head means literally you're gonna take his head and cut it off and nail it to a door, put it on a stake, and the animals will eat the body. I mean, it's, it's like literally the king's gonna cut my head off and I'm gonna be dead if you look worse for the wear. That puts me in a tough spot. Daniel, I wanna help you, but I'm affected by your decisions. So Daniel offers a proposal. In verse 12, he says this, please test your servants for 10 days, just 10 days. Give us a chance. Give us nothing to eat but vegetables and water to drink. I imagine the other kids from the, from the captivity in Jerusalem were like, Daniel, shut up, man. You know, we're here and we're eating good. And hey, I mean, you know, if God cared about what we ate, why did he abandon us here in the first place? Just shut up, Daniel. No, just give, give me and my, my, my guys here, just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then he said this, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. Notice, just give us a little test. And once the test is over, treat your servants in accordance with what you see. If we come out looking fine or even better, then let us do our thing. And if we come out and we look worse like you're afraid we'll look, then you can deal with us as you need to. Then, then deal with us according to what you need to do. But give us a chance before you make your decision. Verse 14, it says, so he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And guess what happened at the end of 10 days? They looked better. Daniel and his three friends looked better than all the other kids on the king's meal diet. And, and we know why, don't we, today? Because they were eating green, right? They were eating healthy. They were eating healthy food. They were drinking lots of water. They were, doing, they were eating a right way. And so they came out looking. Their skin was better, right? Their, their appearance was better. They came out looking better because... They were eating right. And, well, the others, 
It just turned out pretty well. So now the, the, the guy said, well, I guess we can let you do this. Y'all should do this. I'm sure all the other kids from, from Jerusalem were like, thanks a lot, Daniel. But, I mean, he says, go for it. Let's, let's let you live by your principles. After three years of training, three years of training, and eating this way and being trained in the language of Babylon, they had to learn the language of the, of the place they lived, learn their customs, be educated through the system. They did all that other stuff. At the end of three years, they were then brought out to be brought to the king of Babylon to be shown for future people who would now work in his royal palace and in his royal city. And at the end of three years, verse 19 tells us, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. They stood out. They were not just the best and the brightest. They were the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest. And they stood out. Pretty cool story for them. But one man dared to do the right thing. Now, the last verse of this chapter, I'm going to show it to you in a second here. It's the kind of verse that you've probably seen before if you've read through your Bible in a year or whatever you've done. You've probably read this verse. It's the kind of verse that you don't even pay attention to. Because it's kind of like the end of the part, they all lived happily ever, ever after, blah, blah, blah. So this next verse, we brush past it, but you shouldn't do that because it's pretty incredible, actually. In verse 21, it says this, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus, the Persian king. Daniel remained there. He was there as a, probably around a 15-year-old, young teenager. He remained there until the first year. Do you know how long it was from the time that he was brought there to the beginning of the captivity until the first year of King Cyrus? Do you know how many years that was? Anybody? Take a guess. Hint, hint, the length of the captivity. Oh, boy. Yeah. 70. 70 years. I think I heard some the distant background there. 70 years. For 70 years, Daniel remained in Babylon. Listen, that's a you don't, at some point, you just like, you mess up. And you know what? If you mess up, you're not a, a, a royal family's relative. You're just the, when the slaves just get rid of them. At some point, you get older, your, your uselessness outlived itself, or you make the wrong enemy. I mean, he could have been killed the first day he decided not to eat the food. But he remained there for 70 years. Now, this brings us to something else. We're, another story that we're not going to tell today, but we're going to set up another story for a few minutes today because we're going to look at it in a future week. But I've got to set it up because it ties to this. If you were to fast forward to Daniel chapter 6, you'll find that, that what happened was eventually King Nebuchadnezzar died. After he died, there were some other people who sat on the throne for a little while, including one of Nebuchadnezzar's grandsons, I believe, for a little bit. And he was removed. And at some point, a king named Darius the Mede, Darius the Mede assumed the throne there in the royal city of Babylon and was in charge until Cyrus, king of Persia. And while Darius the Mede ruled, it was now Daniel was near 70 years old. In other words, 55 years after this story, 55 years after what we read today, Daniel's nearly 70 years old. And King Darius is now in charge at Babylon, Darius the Mede. And Darius is trying to figure out who he can trust. 
He's trying to figure out who he can trust to help him run this place that he's now in charge of. And so it says in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the governors by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now this is amazing right here. The king walks in and says, I got to find the people I can trust to help me run this place. And I know we all don't like career politicians or nothing like that. But let's be honest for a minute here. Sometimes you're like, I want someone who knows what they're doing around this place because I'm kind of new here. So he's looking around saying, who am I going to trust? And he finds these people who can help him run the kingdom. And among them was a 70-year-old guy named Daniel who 55 years after he refused to eat the king's meat is still around. He, he is so impressive to the new king that the king says, I'm going to put you in charge of all the other governors and administrators because you can help me run the whole kingdom. That was a problem to the others because Daniel shouldn't do that. Daniel was an outsider. He was a captive, a foreigner, you know? I don't want a foreigner or a foreign captive running this place. This is our place, you know? Here's Daniel. What's he doing? I mean, it was one thing that he hung around that long. He had any position of authority among them. That's bad enough. But now he's going to be over us? Oh, that's not going to fly, is it? And so in Daniel 6 verse 4 it says, At this, the administrators and the governors, well, they tried to find grounds and ch for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. In other words, they're going to find some charges against him and they're going to try and get him kicked out or maybe killed. In his conduct, charges against him in his conduct of government affairs. Now, in other words, they wanted to know if there were any skeletons in Daniel's closet. By the way, another expression that means something different today. Back then, people may have had literal skeletons in their closet. People they actually killed and buried their bodies somewhere to get out of their life. Anyhow, it's another story there. But, but Daniel, certainly, in 55 years of being in the royal city and serving in government affairs, I mean, let's be honest, who can serve in government affairs for that long without having some, some dirt on them. Right? I mean, there's got to be some dirt in this guy. That's what people do nowadays in politics, right? You just try and dig up all the dirt on the other party. Find anything to make them, to take, to take them down so you can win and ignore your own. They're like, that's no big deal. You're picking on us now. And then if someone's in front of you, you pull them down to get over their position because everyone's politicking. And these guys are seeing Daniel, this foreigner who's among them. Now he's going to be over them. We got to get the dirt on Daniel. Certainly somewhere in 55 years of government work, he's messed up. Let's find the dirt on Daniel. But it says this, but they were unable to do so. That's amazing. Who can that be set of today? Anywhere, to anybody. The scrutiny. They were unable to find anything on Daniel. They were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him. Because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. This is amazing. That is remarkable right there. What a story about Daniel. That's who we want in charge, isn't it? That's who we want in charge, right? That's who we want in charge of our country. That's who we want in charge of our state. That's who we want in charge of our job, our community, our family. Those are the people we want to lead our home, our, 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 our churches, our pastors. I mean, that's everyone in your life, everywhere you turn, is that who you want around you? People who you say, they're trustworthy, they're not corrupt, they're not negligent. Boy, that's Daniel. That's remarkable. And here's the thing, and just, please don't miss this now. Daniel was that person at 70 because he made up his mind while he was around 17. 
that when he was a young man, I had a chance to say, well, you know, just this one breach of integrity to get myself out of a tough spot, and then I'll be good, which could lead to a second, which could create a pattern. But as a young man, he decided he made up his mind ahead of time to do the right thing, and he kept doing that. And at 70, that was the testimony told about him, because when he was 17, he had made up his mind who he was going to be, the kind of person he was going to be. His enemies, well, they recognize, they figured this out. They recognized there was nothing on this guy. In fact, here's what they said in verse 5. Then these men finally said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. If it has something to do with the law of his God, the only fault we'll find is if his religious piety interferes with how we do things. That's the only chance we have of finding dirt in the sky. Because otherwise, he's above reproach. That's what they said. That was, their, that, was their, that was their end conclusion. Because, what is our verse today? The integrity of the upright, it guides them. It helps them take the long look. Boy, they gave Daniel a long look, didn't it? The integrity of the upright, it guides them. And that right there, that story we just told, it sets us up for one of the most memorable and exciting stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, one of the coolest stories in all the Bible. It's exciting, it's wild, it's, it's a great story. We'll do it next week, so don't miss that. But it sets the stage for that. But we're not going to go there today. For today, I want to simply ask you, how about you? Have you? Have you made up your mind? to be guided by integrity? What guides us? I've been asking this question. What guides you? What guides me? Have you made up your mind? Will we be guided by our integrity or be guided by our appetites? Have you made up your mind ahead of time? Have you made up your mind ahead of time? Because if you don't, if you don't make up your mind ahead of time, integrity won't be your guide. You know what will guide you? Fear. Fear will guide you. Or more specifically, FOMO will guide you. You know what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. FOMO will guide you. Like, oh no, I don't want to miss out. If I don't let him do, if I don't let that boy do this with me, he'll break up with me. If I don't let this girl do this, he'll break up with me. And I don't want to lose him. They're the best thing ever. Whatevs, you know. I got to let him do it though. It's just, it's just, this is my chance. If I don't do this, the, the cool kids won't like me anymore. I'll be, my friends will make fun of me if I don't do this. I'll miss out. If I don't do this at my job, I'll lose this account or I'll lose this job or I'll lose this promotion. I don't want to miss out. This opportunity, fear of missing out will guide you if integrity is not guiding you. But I want to say something to you, and this is so important, and this is, please hear me. If integrity guides you, I want to just be up front with you. If integrity is your guide, you will miss out on some things. But you will not be sorry you did. Most of our biggest regrets in life come out of us fumbling into bad situations to, to not lose that boy or girl or lose that, that group of friends or lose that opportunity or missed the chance to try that thing. Most of our biggest regrets were at a time that we were afraid of missing out and we did something that if we could go back in time, we didn't do it. And when you let integrity be your guide, you never look back and say, man, I missed out and I regret it. You look back and say, I missed out on some things and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. But you gotta take the long look. The integrity of the upright guides them. Isn't, isn't this inspiring? Isn't this inspiring? They could find no corruption in him, because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Isn't that, come on, isn't that who you want to marry? 
Isn't that who you want to hire to work for you? Isn't that who you want to date your kids? Isn't that who you want to be? That's why I said at the beginning of the sermon, who do you, who do you want to be like when you grow up? Who is that person? And, and, and who could ever aspire to be like you? Will you be the kind of person someone could look to, like Daniel, as a person of integrity? Will you, will you make up your mind to do what you ought to, even if it costs you? It may cost you. But here's the thing. That, that is when the now God moments happen. Those are the moments when God ever steps in. If you ever want to hear the stories and the things that can happen, they happen in those moments where you take, you do the right thing, and it may not work out the way you want to. It may cost you. But it's the space that is created when we do the right thing where the now God moments can take place. But you got to make up your mind to do what you ought to, even if it costs you.